<clears throat> All right, so we're coming up on our last episode. Um, my uh, previous couple of episodes have been getting quite a bit longer than the ones I started with. And unfortunately, this one is probably going to be even longer than the others. And the subject matter is going to be more difficult than anything we've, I've covered so far. So um, that's uh, an unfortunate thing. But because th this is the last episode, once we're done with this, we're done. Um, so um, we've covered quite a bit of stuff so far. In the first episode, I introduced the idea of epistemic models. And I believe that we need to start to think of theology <clears throat> through this concept of epistemic models um, because it, it's gonna just change the way we, we see what is happening in, in the world of theology. And it's gonna help us to process and to, to make sense and to learn how to work with these things. And one of the things we're gonna need is we're going to need to create a system um, for evaluating models that, that has certain criteria by which to say, okay, these models uh, work, they're viable, they, they have all the elements necessary for a model to, to be coherent and to be a, a possibly correct within, with, based, based on the information we have at the present time and then <clears throat> figure out which of the models could fit within that category and which ones uh, are no longer viable so that we can have a meaningful conversation every time somebody might introduce a new idea, we can contrast it to, to this criteria of viability and compare with some of the other existing models. Um, and this is something, this is a, a kind of work that needs to be done in the world of theology, uh, philosophical theology, systematic theology, and so on. So anyway, we started with, with the idea of epistemic models. In the second episode, I, I mostly outlined the models that are prominent at this point in time, uh, whether or not they are actually viable. Um, some of the models that I've listed, I don't, I don't personally consider viable, but I didn't really get into that in, the, in this video podcast series. I, write about, I, I talk about it more within the document, in the written document. Uh, the Sola Scriptura Manifesto. So anyway, the, the main uh, approaches <clears throat> to theology that we work with today are the Catholic, the Protestant, the liberal, the New Orthodox, and the fundamentalist. Um, by Catholic, I don't mean just the Catholic Church, but any community-based model like the Orthodox, the uh, Eastern Orthodox community, and, and there's other, uh, other groups as well that follow that model. Um, the Protestant model obviously is a, a major umbrella term that has many variants um, as well as to the others. Okay, so that's second episode number two. Episode number three, uh, I argued based on uh, theologians belonging to these various models that no one is in fact actually doing sola scriptura theology. Uh, some groups are not doing it because they don't agree with the principles, with the principle of it. Other groups agree with the principle but have modified the meaning of the term to mean something other than a Bible-only theology. And then some groups that are trying to do sola scriptura theology are, just haven't found a way to do it that actually works. And pretty much everyone except them is in agreement that their, their methodology doesn't work. So overall, there just doesn't seem to be any <clears throat> universally accepted coherent methodology for doing sola scriptura theology. 
And many people are just denying the possibility of it altogether and saying it's just not something that can be done. And I've argued that logically speaking, there should be a way to do it. And then in episode number four, I've outlined the methodology. And I started by <clears throat> arguing that SOA scriptura doesn't mean uh, inerrancy. There's a limited amount of errancy that is possible, a limited amount of error that is possible to have in scripture and still have a SOA scriptura theology because we work with errant documents all the time and we get by just fine. Uh, you know, you read high level books and you still find mistakes in them. And those mistakes don't, uh, don't uh, negate everything else the book has accomplished. So there's no reason why we're, we're, we have to be stuck on this inerrancy concept that uh, a lot of conservative groups keep uh, propagating. Uh, but the minute we allow for error in scripture, we have to adjust our methodology for that. And we have to think in terms of uh, working with an entire body of data as opposed to just focusing in on segments or giving priority to some area or another. We need, to, we need to apply the same methods we use in working with big data in, in, in the rest of the world, the various fields that, that, you know, that people work in. Uh, because in, in today's world, big data is something normal. I mean, like you, you have enormous amounts of data and there's ways to parse through it and to make sense of it and to, to sort it out and work with it. In spite of possible errors and anomalies and uh, <clears throat> mistakes in recording, mistakes in uh, sorting through it and all this stuff. Um, so anyway, there's implications of a, of a limited errancy model for scripture. And having dealt with that, the next step is we have to, <clears throat> we have to treat the Bible the way we treat any standalone document, which means we have to find the, the thread that ties everything together into a logical whole so that we can make sense of the parts. If we don't have that, we don't have any way to, to figure out which possible interpretation is correct. So we need, we need a sort of a big picture. Um, I, I've been calling it the macro narrative to interpret the parts. And then I've argued that it's next to impossible to decipher the correct macro narrative if we're working with the, with the incorrect metaphysics. And metaphysics, again, it's a, it's a big word that simply means uh, the understanding of reality as a whole, beyond just the things that we can see and feel and touch and smell and so on. Uh, whatever is behind the scenes, the nature of God, the nature of reality, the nature of man, all these things, these metaphysical elements we have to derive them, derive them from scripture and just basically try to set aside our own preconceived notions of what reality is like and look at the Bible and see what kind of picture of reality it builds and then develop our uh, macro narrative from within that context. Because otherwise we're going to end up with a macro narrative mismatch. And if we end up with this, this uh, uh, with the incorrect macro narrative for scripture, it's gonna affect every other subsequent attempt at interpre interpretation. Okay, so that was sort of the, the theory of the, of the methodology, the source scripture methodology in episode number four. Um, and then in episode number five, we applied this methodology, uh, at least as I would understand that it would work. And I've argued that the place where uh, things got sort of uh, off track is because of the influence of, of Greek philosophy and Christian theology in the early phases and, and subsequent phases as well, because to be honest, 
there's never been a time in history when at least some version of philosophy affected Christian theology. Um, the first few hundred years, it was Platonism, Neoplatonism a little bit later, Aristotelianism later. Uh, after the Reformation, you went back to Platonism and, and Augustine Neoplatonism for a bit. Uh, and then we had the Enlightenment and we had all kinds of other perspectives as well. But it was always some sort of external framework that was superimposed on scripture. Um, and yet this is not necessary. I mean, the Bible has enough substance that we could work out a, a, a metaphysic from. We don't need to bring external, um, you know, frames of reference, external lenses to, to superimpose on scripture. So if we're going to do sola scriptura theology, we need to find a way to put our preconceived notions and concepts or pictures of reality aside and just go with, with the, the way the Bible presents reality. And the most important element, the thing that affects every other subsequent conclusion is our concept of God. The biblical concept of God, if we just let the biblical data speak without external influences, ends up being something different than the, the classical theism concept of God. Uh, we, even if we might not figure out how to work it out philosophically after that, like how exactly do we make sense of a God that uh, is so much more involved in history, so much more involved involved in time than the the classical God concept, you know, with the timeless God of the Greeks? Uh, we might not be able to fully understand philosophically how it works, but to do so as scriptural theology, we need to just work within the biblical data. And uh, the biblical data leads to a certain concept of God that just doesn't line up with the philosophical perspectives that different people have superimposed on scripture. And the minute we do that, uh, then that has ripple effects on other aspects of our understanding of reality as well, because now um, the world as it is becomes a lot more real. Um, you know, the traditional or ancient philosophy uh, seemed to kind of go back and forth between a Platonistic perspective where uh, the spiritual reality was somewhere else and this was a shadow of something. And then the Aristotelian perspective where the, the spiritual essence was within the, the objects themselves. So like there was a substance that was spiritual within something that was physical, but none of those really come out of scripture. The Bible doesn't have this concept of a sort of dualistic reality. The Bible just treats the world as it is, as if this is what God intended, this is what God wanted to make, and this is the reality within which we exist, and will continue to exist throughout eternity because it's good the way the way He made it, uh, and it doesn't need to seem like something negative to us. You know, the way the Greeks perceived time as negative and change as negative and matter as negative. No. God made them. God made these things. They, they have been tainted by sin, but they're good. And they're going to, to be good for the rest of eternity. They're going to be better than what they are now because sin has done a lot of damage, but they're going to keep continuing on the way, uh, the way they have been uh, because that's what God intended to create to begin with. So that's a perspective we get from scripture and it affects how we understand a lot of other aspects. So it affects our eschatology and so many other things. And I've also mentioned that uh, even the ethical perspective that philosophy brings in affects, affects our understanding of the gospel. And once we work through that, it gives us a, a better picture of how the gospel is to work, supposed to work as well. And then I mentioned that the, the 
the macro narrative uh, that sorts all this, puts all this together and gives it gives a logical sense is the cosmic conflict macro narrative. And once we allow for those things, we can <clears throat> essentially like if we brought a hundred people together and we told them to read the Bible alone, uh, each one of them would, would bring their preconceived views of reality and, and come up to a hundred different interpretations. But if we got the same hundred people and help them get a sense of the Bible's metaphysics, and help them understand the Bible's macro narrative, and we give them, they, we send them away to read their Bibles by themselves, they would all come to very similar conclusions of biblical theology because they have a framework within, within which to work. It's essentially the same thing that the Protestants tried to do with the church fathers, but the church fathers ent ended up leading to fragmentation because of their metaphysical perspective. So, uh, they tried to use the fathers as a way to rein in biblical theology when it turns out that it actually ended up uh, creating what uh, 500 years later has ended up being this massive amount of denominations. All right, so in this episode, we're going to be focusing on uh, other issues that concern theologians today and maybe are a priority for theologians today, which is, you know, what about all the scientific things that have been discovered over the, the past few centuries and in the areas where science seems to conflict with the scripture. Um, and I, I would fully agree that if we do a sola scriptura theology the way I've outlined it here, and we draw our conclusions entirely based on the biblical data within this context that I've outlined, uh, there's going to be some conflicts with modern science. So how do we address that and how do we deal with it? Um, to, do the, to, to address this, we have to spend a little bit of time going even deeper into this concept of epistemology. Um, maybe before I do that, I should just mention that um, there's a way to approach this question to where even if the, the process I'm describing um, or the theology that I'm, I'm laying out here, the, the Sola Scriptura epistemic model, even if it turns out that it ends up conflicting with modern science, I would argue that it is still valuable for the model to be developed and understood. Um, if for no other reason, because it is a theology based on Christianity's central text. I mean, the Bible has been uh, honored and, and reverenced by Christians throughout the entire history of Christianity. And even in modern times by everybody, regardless of where they fall on the spectrum, they, they view the Bible differently. They give it different credibility on different scenarios, but everybody uh, has seen the Bible as an important book and a central book to, to, to their way of thinking. So it makes sense to have a biblical theology that is well-developed and that everybody's aware of, regardless of, of how, how it ends up conflicting with other things. But in this episode, I'm going to try to lay out a pathway for possibly working out some of those conflicts that, that are going to come up, on, uh, unfortunately, and um, 
they're unavoidable at this point in time based on where things are at. Okay, so now let's go back to, to epistemology. We talked about the epistemic models and I mentioned that the source of the differences has to do with assumptions about how God communicates with humanity. You know, some people believe that the church, God left the, the church in charge of guiding theology and, and, and deciphering between different sources of truth. Uh, then Protestantism came around with the, the idea of Sola Scriptura. Then we had the Enlightenment and the uh, liberal Christianity with this idea that we need to base our theology on reason and on science and on, on our experience and our sense of dependence. And, and, and then neo-orthodoxy focused mostly on the incarnation and, and, and so on. So there's, there's this different starting presuppositions that people from coming from different perspectives, different traditions, have used to build their theology on. But now we're gonna go even deeper and see what, what further presuppositions each one of these models is making. And to do that, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what are the starting assumptions that each tradition works with regarding the nature of reality and the nature of knowledge? Uh, each tradition is making assumptions about how human beings know stuff. Where are they getting their knowledge from? What is the process by which we, we learn things? And unfortunately, the starting point for most of these models is different from each other. So uh, the models are making some very primordial, very, very early assumptions about how knowledge works and about what reality is like. And it's affecting the rest of their conclusions, but they're taking those assumptions for granted as if they're undeniable. This has to be the way it works. And each one of these models is making different assumptions and they're taking them for granted. And it's essentially impossible to find a way to communicate across the board. So the first thing we got to discuss is how do we establish sort of a default um, baseline, a default starting point from which we could have a conversation regarding each of these different perspectives? Because otherwise it would be impossible to, to communicate from one model to another because even the means by which various forms of knowledge are transmitted is understood differently between them. So here's what I propose has to be the starting point in, in all subsequent conversation. And this doesn't affect just Christian theology. It affects all the different religions and it affects the non-religious crowd as well. How do we establish a baseline or, or the full starting point for determining, uh, for, for creating a, the ability to have a conversation between uh, people that don't believe in any God or people from a Buddhist perspective or from a, um, a Hindu perspective or something else. Um, and I would say <clears throat> the default starting point has to be two things. We have to acknowledge that the only thing we can really agree on in terms of how knowledge works is that we depend on our reason and our senses for knowledge. And I'll come back to this in a second. And given this point, given that knowledge, human knowledge is dependent on reason and, and the senses, then we don't really have any way to know for a fact what ultimate reality is like. And I'll explain this in a second. I think, um, I mean, this, what I'm about to say, it, it's going to be an analogy, but this analogy could actually be a real scientific experiment were not for the fact that it's ethically not viable. I mean, it would require taking advantage of human beings 
in a way that would possibly not be healthy for their for their mental health. So nobody's actually going to do this experiment, but theoretically, such an experiment could be done to demonstrate what what the analogy is meant to demonstrate here. So here's the analogy. Imagine that you wake up in a large concrete room and that has no doors and no windows, okay? You went to bed last night, you wake up this morning and you're on the floor of this massive room that's concrete, thick concrete walls all the way around. There's, there's no opening anywhere, right? So the question is, what can you know? What can you know about <clears throat> why you're there who put you there? Where exactly are you? You know, where is this room at geographically? Uh, and all these type of questions that an, an, a person would have if they woke up in such a place. You know, they would open their eyes and immediately they'll be wondering what is going on? Where am I? Why am I here? Right? What can you actually know? Well, what would you do? You would go around the room and try to find a crack in the wall so you could look outside. But unfortunately, there is no crack. It's, it's an extremely thick concrete wall. You put your ear to the wall to see if you could hear anything, but you don't hear anything. You know, there's no smell in the air. Um, you feel your way around the place and, and still nothing, and you're done. I mean, essentially, your senses are not able to, to reach outside this box you're in, and there's nothing more you could do to figure out what's going on. Now, that is the end of empirical knowledge about the situation, right? That is the end or the, the, the limit of where your senses can take you to provide you with information. Uh, you do have something else at your disposal. You have your reason. But it's, it's interesting how reason actually works. <clears throat> your reason is not able to go through the wall outside and figure out what's going on. But you could use your imagination to think about possibilities. So you might say, okay, what could be happening here? Why am I here? And you could say, okay, um, maybe one possibility is that this is some kind of scientific experiment. You know, some crazy person is trying to, to figure out, you know, <clears throat> how long I last before I go crazy in this, in this uh, room over here by myself. And they're just doing this weird experiment and, uh, and essentially I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here for that. Or you might say, okay, maybe this is uh, uh, this is some kind of practical joke. Or you might say, uh, maybe this is uh, some kind of entertainment uh, show or program for some really, really um, unhealthy-minded people, or something like that, right? So anyway, whatever you whatever you come up with your reason is able to postulate, to, to hypothesize different possibilities, different scenarios that might be more plausible than other scenarios. And, you know, some people will dismiss this and say, hey, that's not knowledge. But it's, it's better than nothing, at least. Why? Because otherwise you're dealing with an infinite, infinite amount of possibilities. But by using your reason, you could dismiss many possibilities and say, you know, those are highly unlikely. So then I'm left with some possibilities that might actually be true. And once you come up with a handful of possible scenarios as to why you're here, then you could say, well, if scenario number one is correct, then maybe this is going to happen. And um, maybe, you know, it's going to have a 
positive outcome in the end. If scenario number two is correct, then who knows, you know, and, and you could actually take each one of these possibilities or hypotheses here and develop them and think about the implications of each one. Um, and this is beneficial because it will give you something to work with. But, but the thing to, to, to not forget here is that, you know, even though your reason gives you a little bit more than, than you would have without it, in other words, you're, <clears throat> you're not dealing with, with all the different possible scenarios in, you know, in the universe, you're, you're limiting yourself to, to just a handful of scenarios. Um, that's still not the same as actually knowing the truth, right? So you're essentially coming up with different possibilities and taking a guess. Um, <clears throat> and I would say that this concrete room example provides us with a baseline for what human beings can actually know under most circumstances. <clears throat> and if somebody disagrees with me, I, I invite them to put themselves in, in this analogy, go into this concrete room and tell me what else you can know. How else would you know anything besides what I've just mentioned here, except what you can get through your senses, which is pretty much absolutely nothing, and what you can imagine using your reason and develop into different possibilities, right? That, that's essentially where we are as human beings. And, and I would say this, this is something that should be universally acknowledged that this is under normal circumstances, this is what we are able to know as human beings. <clears throat> However, there's one more piece of this puzzle before I move on and explain how this applies to the situation. This is actually only a one-way problem, okay? We have these limitations of knowledge, but the problem is unidirectional, right? Because you from within this concrete room have no way of knowing what's happening outside the room and why you're there and all these other questions you have. But somebody outside the room, uh, especially the people that put you there, they don't have a they don't have the same problem. You know, if they were able to put you in that room, they could let you out or they could communicate with you in some way and let you know why you're there and let you know what's going on. So the problem is only the epistemic limitations are yours. They're not uh, universal, right? It's not affecting just everybody, you know, all the other uh, characters involved here, it's just affecting you, okay? So what does this mean for, for the way we perceive reality? <clears throat> well, we exist in this world and the world is a material reality. We, you know, scientists will say this is a spatio-temporal reality, you know, where everything that happens is somehow a, a product or a function of, of the, the physical. So for example, our senses. And, you know, science is, is basically a study of uh, the material reality. It's an empirical study of reality. Now, our senses, are themselves a function of this material uh, or physical reality that we exist in, right? Because if, if you think about your eyesight, when you look at something, you're not seeing the thing itself, you're seeing the reflection of light on that object. And if you're listening to something, <clears throat> you're hearing the, the, you're detecting vibrations in the air. And if you're smelling something, you're, you're uh, sensing the, the particles, you know, particles that are coming towards you through the air as well. Uh, again, and if you're touching it, you're, you're, you're detecting the presence of something through the nerves in your fingers. 
So pretty much everything you observe about the world around you comes to your senses and your senses are detecting matter, the presence of matter or the effects of matter in some way. Um, even if we use science, <clears throat> science to extend our senses. So for example, my eyesight has a certain range of, of uh, light uh, uh, ways that it's able to detect, right? You know, there, there's this certain spectrum of light and there's the, the visible section that we can detect and then there's things outside of our visible spectrum, but we can develop devices that are able to detect uh, what, it, what it is outside of our visible spectrum and still know that something is there, you know. Um, I hope I'm not wrong on this because it's been a while since I've looked at these things, but like infrared and other, other, other types of um, um, light um, or things on that spectrum. So we're able to use technology to extend our senses, but even when we do this, we're still relying on the interaction of matter in some way in order to learn about what's going on around us. So the question is, if such a thing as metaphysics exists, so in other words, if you could picture a bubble and say that this bubble represents all of spatial temporal reality as we know it, uh, maybe atheists are right and that's all there is. The, the entire, everything that exists, the entirety of the reality is just this spatial temporal reality. But it's also possible that there's something else beyond it. And if there is something else beyond it, the question is, how would we know that using uh, any of our empirical methods, using science, using our senses? Because our senses are always dependent on the material. It is, they're always some kind of function of material reality. And if something is outside of this, how would we know about it, right? So we're limited when it comes to, to metaphysics just like the person inside that concrete room has no way of looking outside and figuring out, figuring out where they are. And <clears throat> when it comes to our reason, again, it's the same situation. The only thing we can do is imagine possibilities. So we can imagine different metaphysical perspectives that could possibly exist, or we could imagine that no metaphysics exists. All there is is this, this natural physical reality that we're experiencing. We can use our imagination to propose these possibilities, but we have no way to really know which one is the correct one because we have no access to that sphere of existence if there's anything even there. And again, this is a one-way limitation. If something exists outside of our reality, <clears throat> this something might be able to find a way to reach out to us, even though we're limited in our ability to reach out to, to whatever is out there. So in, in, the, <clears throat> in the PowerPoint here in, in my video, I have a, a picture of two circles. Uh, so there's a, a smaller circle called physical reality. And the smaller circle is within a bigger circle called the supernatural or metaphysics or spiritual reality. And uh, we don't actually know if what that looks like. You know, we don't have a way to, to go outside our circle or to know if there is, is even is anything out there um, based on reason or based on science. These are the tools we have at knowledge, uh, at least in general, generally speaking, like I, like I uh, described with my, with my concrete room example, and we don't really have a way of knowing what is beyond that. 
All right. So um, I would argue that this analogy that I've used with the concrete room uh, gives us a sort of baseline, a sort of foundation from which to start all subsequent conversation and to look at all these different possible models that we're working with to see how we reason through them. <clears throat> so when it comes to the nature of reality, the starting point has to be an agnostic starting point. We have no idea what ultimate reality is like. And when it comes to the process by which we gain knowledge, um, it has to be our reason and our senses. Anything we say beyond that, uh, we'll have to address in some way. So basically anything we assume about reality beyond the sort of basic starting point, it has to be treated as a hypothesis. So we, we don't know what is out there and we don't know how we can know it besides our reason and our senses. And we know that these two avenues for knowledge are limited and cannot give us metaphysical information. But of course, there's all these different groups uh, all over the planet that, that are making metaphysical claims and the question is, how are they claiming to know that information? And the answer is, there's a hypothesis that is different for each one. So for example, for a lot of the traditional Christian perspectives, the hypothesis is that God is this uh, being that, that exists in a timeless sphere that exists as separate from creation and is, is basically in a, a sort of, in a sort of spiritual realm. But we have this soul that is also capable of connecting with, with, with the, the, the divine reality in some way. And our knowledge, <clears throat> uh, pretty much anything we know about the world has its basis on the soul being able to interact with the, with the divine knowledge um, through some avenue. And this goes back to Plato who, <clears throat> who argued that human knowledge is the result of our soul being able to tap into the world of the forms so that it has some sense of what things are. So when we come into the world and we see those things, we know what they are because we have this sense of what, what the forms are. Okay, so <clears throat> there's within the, the philosophical world, especially for Christian traditions that have a basis in Platonism, um, there's this assumption that knowledge comes to us through the soul. But what I'm arguing here is that this has to be treated as a hypothesis after we've already established the baseline, which is that <clears throat> um, we don't know what reality is like and we, we don't know how we're getting any, gaining any knowledge beyond our reason and our senses. So that's a baseline. And now somebody, one group of Christians is proposing this hypothesis and we have to treat it as a hypothesis because it's going beyond the stuff that we could actually demonstrate. And the only thing we can demonstrate is that in the concrete room, we, we just don't know what's outside and where we're there unless somebody reveals it to us, okay? So that's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis has its basis more in the Aristotelian perspective, uh, going through Thomas Aquinas and into uh, <clears throat> natural theology, which is that uh, God imprinted some type of knowledge of, of himself and of ultimate reality within the things that he created in the physical sphere. So as we look at the physical world around us, we can draw conclusions and inferences about what else is out there. But again, that is a hypothesis. So, so the uh, Thomas Aquinas or the Catholic world in general 
or whoever else has this perspective, they're making a claim that goes beyond the default, beyond the stuff that we could all agree on as being, being just an undeniable fact of our existence. And uh, it has to be treated as a hypothesis. It cannot be taken for granted or assumed as a, some kind of default perspective. Okay, that's one thing. The other, the other option is maybe the liberal perspective where there's some sort of a feeling of dependence or experience of God, some sense of ultimate morality or, or reason, um, science, the neo-orthodox might come at it from the incarnational perspective where the revelation of God is, is in, in Christ becoming human and all this. But whatever the assumptions are, we need to treat them as a hypothesis that takes us beyond the baseline that we've already established. And as we do that, we can do the same thing with scripture. We could say the scripture is, is another hypothesis. In other words, we could say <clears throat> the avenue by which uh, somebody outside of our concrete room is communicating with us and that avenue is the scripture. It's just one means of communication, just like any other means of communication that I've listed here, whether it's God speaking directly through the soul, God speaking through nature or through some other way. Each one of these is a separate hypothesis the hypotheses are not superior or inferior to each other because we just have no way of knowing uh, from the beginning which is correct. And then there's the sort of ontology epistemology circularity. In other words, if we believe <clears throat> that re ultimate reality is a certain way, regardless of which of these perspectives one takes, then we end up being more likely to favor a certain epistemology. So <clears throat> somebody who believes that you know God is a certain way and that he transmits his knowledge to us through the soul, then they're more likely to work with that epistemology, which ends up leading them to that ontology. So there's this sort of back and forth between epistemology and, and ontology. And we need to, to kind of step back from there and realize this circularity. Like essentially each one of these models, people that function from within those models instinctively assume that their epistemology makes more sense. And they're biased in this way to, to favor one epistemology over the other, when in fact, there's no actual way to know which of the epistemologies makes more, which is more, more likely to be correct. So um, <clears throat> we need to kind of step back from this, go to that default setting that I've established earlier, and then treat each one of this as a different hypothesis. And without being able to establish priorities between the hypothesis, because we don't know ahead of time what God would actually do or what the supernatural would actually do or, or whoever else. So what we end up having to do is evaluating the models we develop out of those hypotheses rather than the hypotheses themselves. So the starting assumptions, they're all equal. There's no way to tell which one is more likely, but then we develop each hypothesis into a model of whole picture of reality. And then we look at it and say, okay, there's some, you know, this model works really well. It seems to address all the data we have of, of reality, everything we understand about our existence, while some other model might not, might not do so well, or it might have challenges in, uh, addressing some of the data. <clears throat> um, so in this sense, you could say that every possible model, and this affects Christianity, other religions, or naturalist hypotheses. Each one of these models starts with, with the presupposition. So you could say each one of them is a presuppositional model. And I'm using this phrase because 
uh, that phrase is sometimes used in a derogatory sense against some approaches to theology, and, and I'll come back to this in a second. But essentially, each one of the models <clears throat> starts with certain assumptions that are just assumed. There's no way to know for a fact that they're correct at the very beginning of their whole logical process. They're assuming things about the nature of reality and things about the nature of knowledge, and then building from there. And, and this is important in Christian theology because there's, there's a sense of superiority that certain groups in Christianity have. And it's usually groups that rely a lot more on science and reason than, than other groups that rely more on scripture or tradition or things that are uh, kind of seen as an authority. Because, you know, like liberal theology or even the orthodox theology, essentially, <clears throat> Uh, they view themselves as, as building their theology on, on logic and on reason and, and a sort of a more solid foundation. But what they're actually doing is they're just presupposing. So they're starting with a presupposition, just like everybody else, but they're presupposing that God used that avenue, the avenue of human reason, to communicate with us and to reveal to us what reality is about. So Remember, we had that picture of the room and you're inside the room and you have no way to know what's going on outside your concrete room, but whoever put you there can communicate and, and grant you information. And those who are doing liberal theology are assuming that whatever God is out there has communicated with us and given us information through these different avenues, the avenue of reason, the avenue of science, the avenue of uh, human experience. And so essentially, when you kind of peel back the layers, all theologies start with some basic presuppositions. And in that sense, they're on equal footing. What they do from then on, the way they build from there can be evaluated and, and somebody could say, look, this theology, when you compare it to everything we know about reality so far, it has a lot of discrepancies, it doesn't work. Once you've developed it, once you build it up and you, you've seen the the theology in, in its entire systematic form, then you could evaluate it, but the, but the beginning points are equal. You cannot differentiate and say one is better than the other because you don't know what God would do. You don't know how God would choose to communicate. And that all depends again on his nature, which is something you have no way of knowing ahead of time, unless you pick an epistemology and you develop it, and that will lead you to some kind of picture of concept of the nature of God. But again, it's circular because you, you don't know which one is the correct one. All right, so hopefully that makes sense. If not, I'll probably have to come back to it at some point and address it in a future video. But uh, <clears throat> the key here is that we're starting with the, with the default foundation, which is we have no clue what ultimate reality is like. And our only basis for knowledge is our reason and our senses, which cannot tell us anything about metaphysics except to provide possible guesses. Once we establish that baseline, we come up with hypotheses, and each one of these make different assumptions about reality, and those assumptions are evil. They're, evil. <clears throat> they're not evil, they're equal. All those presuppositions that they make are essentially just guesses, and there's no way to differentiate between them. All right, so moving on, <clears throat> the next point in, in this sequence of arguments that I'm making is that we are not able to exist apart from a one of these models, one of these uh, uh, worldviews or pictures of reality. Um, <clears throat> P. 
people can claim to be agnostic, theoretically, but in real life, they end up living their life based on some assumption about reality. So essentially they could say they're agnostic, but in practice, there's something else. They, they might be atheists, they might be naturalists, uh, <clears throat> they, they might have some other worldview that they live their life within, even though theoretically they could claim to, to have no clue which, which version of reality is the correct one. So um, we need to stop treating agnosticism as a viable possibility because it's not. All of us eventually have to live our lives and we have to live it within some kind of model. So we have to pick something. So we need to uh, start our reasoning process from this ag agnostic baseline because we, we don't know ahead of time what reality is like. <clears throat> but then we need to come up with hypotheses and develop models and look at the different models and compare them with each other and choose which one we're gonna work with. We cannot just exist in a vacuum and pretend everybody else who, who, who's going with some kind of model, who's going to, with some kind of worldview uh, is foolish because there's no way to know which worldview is true. So you might as well not pick anyone. You can't not pick any model. Eventually you have to, to live within something. So the steps that we have to take if we wanna go about this process rationally is to, to start off with an agnostic baseline, an agnostic default, come up with the various hypotheses that we can think of, develop this hypothesis, and then look how they contrast with, gen with yeah, the, the data of our existence in general and with each other, which, which of the other models do better or worse when it comes to, um, to all the different aspects of life that we encounter. And again, there might be difference of opinion here, but at least when once we approach things this way, we have a chance to uh, come to a con correct conclusion as opposed to <clears throat> trying to, to take things from gra for granted from the start, you know, just assume one model is correct and just spend your whole life living within that model as if there's no other possibility. Okay, so if we're gonna take that approach, let's start with, with as, as our first example with the model of naturalism, which is one uh, legitimate possibility. So essentially, we're here, we don't know what else is there. You know, we, we live in this spatio-temporal reality. We don't know if this is all there is or if there's something else besides this, but there is a legitimate possibility that the spatio-temporal reality is all there is, okay? So given that's the case, let's kind of take a little bit of time and think through how that possibility works. <clears throat> uh, first of all, we gotta address some, what I would say, uh, mistaken philosophical uh, perspectives that a lot of times, um, you know, people, people fall into. Okay, so again, naturalism is the perspective that the physical or material is all there is. Um, scientists will say that spatio-temporal reality that we experience, um, that's what they would call it. And then the naturalists will say, that, well, that's all there is. Um, now, a lot of modern atheists that you talk to will, will, will instinctively treat naturalism as, as the default position and then will expect every other possible position to, to carry a burden of proof. So they'll say, well, uh, you know, you claim God exists, 
you need to offer proof. Uh, extraordinary, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. God, the existence of God is an extraordinary claim. Uh, you need to provide extraordinary evidence. Uh, your evidence has to be scientific. And since you have no evidence, then, you know, you lost and, and I'm correct, so to speak. That's, that's kind of the, the game that a lot of atheists play today. But naturalism is just as, <clears throat> just as, an ex, just as extraordinary a claim as any of the other possible scenarios. Because essentially we don't know which one is correct. We have no way of knowing <clears throat> that one option is better than the other any more than we could um, claim that one face of a die, you know, like if you're playing dice and you take one and you throw it, one of the one of the six numbers is not the default. Any of them could be the number you you land on, right? There there is no default face to to a die. And it's the same thing with this. We exist in this reality. This is all we can see. We don't know what's out there. There could be all kinds of things out there, or maybe there isn't anything out there. And one is not more plausible than the other. We just simply don't know. So naturalism is not the default. Now another thing atheists will say, well. Maybe, but uh, we got to apply Occam's razor. The thing with Occam's razor and uh, Occam's razor, for those that haven't heard the term, is this idea that, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll recommend looking it up, maybe just do a quick search on Wikipedia or whatever, is this idea that when you have multiple possibilities for something, you should go with the simplest possibility, the one that requires you to make the least assumptions uh, about the solution. And that's great. If, if we use Occam's razor properly, and Occam's razor um, <clears throat> works in terms of uh, the practical. Like for example, if we're conducting a science experiment and we have several possible hypotheses, it makes sense to start with the simplest hypothesis, the, the one that makes the least assumptions because uh, we end up investing the least amount of work. And if the hypothesis is incorrect, then we haven't wasted a lot of time we could go to the next next plausible hypothesis, hypothesis, and uh, <clears throat> uh, and kind of take them in the sequence so that we waste the least amount of time coming to the correct conclusion. Uh, but that is from a practical perspective. Um, if we were to set up a science experiments to actually uh, test Occam's razor, and we said, okay, here's a thousand different experiments, and ahead of time, we decided what would be the simplest solution. And then we did the experiments, it would turn out that the simplest solution doesn't always work. Sometimes that's the correct answer. Sometimes one of the more complex solutions is the correct answer. So Occam's razor doesn't tell us anything about reality and what is actually out there. It's just a process that we follow to not to put ourselves in a situation where we do unnecessary extra work. So this, this is not a solution to the question either. Uh, a third argument that, that a lot of atheists bring is that, uh, yeah, sure, there could have been <clears throat> a lot of different hypotheses, a lot of different possibilities about the nature of reality, but the success of science tells us that the naturalistic perspective is the correct one. Um, this is also a mistake on the part of many atheists. And essentially, I would say it's a, sort of like a, philosophical uh, superficiality that seems to have become popular within modern atheist circles the past few decades, probably because of some of the simplistic books that they read, you know, from, from popular atheists. But um, 
the success of science is compatible with many different metaphysical perspectives. Um, regardless of what religion you're coming from, regardless of different, different perspectives in Christianity or, or elsewhere, um, many, you know, there's, there's some perspectives that are not compatible with the success of science. So you could eliminate those perspectives and say, well, science proves that those particular metaphysical hypotheses are wrong, but there's a bunch of other metaphysical hypotheses that do just fine with the success of science. In fact, uh, they line up, line up with it perfectly well. So um, that doesn't prove anything either. The success of science doesn't favor naturalism any more than it favors any, any of the other perspectives. Okay, so that, those are things that, those are philosophical mistakes that are often made by naturalists um, that give them a, a sense that, that their perspective is more plausible than it actually is. Okay, so that's that. Now, um, another thing about naturalism is that there's several problems with it. And these are not problems in terms of completely demolishing the perspective. So just to be clear, I'm actually arguing here that the naturalistic perspective is a legitimate and viable uh, point of view. And I'm not saying that people are irrational for taking this perspective. I'm just trying to show that it is not more rational to take this perspective than some of the other ones we're gonna be discussing later. So here's some of the problems with naturalism. Problem number one, it doesn't have access to metaphysics. This is what I illustrated earlier through that uh, person in a box, right? The, the person in the concrete room and then the person outside. When you're in the concrete room, you cannot access what's outside, but whoever puts you there can, can give you the knowledge you need and tell you all the information you need. So if naturalism is correct, there's nothing outside of our spatio-temporal reality to inform us, to give us any kind of additional information besides the things that we can deduce on our own. So the thing is, if naturalism is correct, we will, we will never be able to know that naturalism is correct because we'll never be able to prove there's no such thing as something outside our, of our spatio-temporal reality because there will be, it will be impossible for us to access it even if there was, right? So that's one limitation of the naturalistic perspective. It, it can never fully demonstrate itself, okay? Uh, problem number two, it even has limited access to the thing it can access, so which is the physical world. <clears throat> so in theory, if we're just speaking in theory, logically, it should be possible, maybe given another 500 years, another thousand years as science progresses more and more, and as we study the universe, we should be able to come to a point, theoretically speaking, where we understand pretty much everything about our reality. And at that point, we should be able to say, you know what? We don't know if this spatial temporal reality is all there is, but at least we can be sure that if there was, at least we can be sure that this spatial temporal reality could exist on its own. It doesn't need anything on the outside. It doesn't need a God. It doesn't need a supernatural. We've looked at all the pieces of the puzzle and we figured out how it all came to exist and it, it was able to do it all on its own. And there's no need for it for postulating anything else. So there's, there's a point, theoretically speaking, as some distant, in some distant future, there's a point where the naturalists could come and say at least <clears throat> that they figured out everything in the universe and that everything is, is 
works just fine on its own. But that's way out in the future. At this point of time, those type of conclusions are completely out of our reach because we, we, we have access to so little of the data we need to figure all these things out. I mean, we, uh, based on ca calculations, we, we are able to observe only a small percentage of the, of the universe as a whole. Whatever they assume the universe is after the Big Bang, uh, the visible universe is just a small percentage of that. And, and you know we cannot go back in history and see how it all began. We don't know if there's anything prior to that, if there's a multiverse or anything else. Scientists have no clue at this point. I mean, they're, they're talking about it, they're studying it, but we're still a long ways from figuring this out. So even when it comes to naturalism, even the thing that it, it is able to access, which is physical reality, is still a long way from fully uh, wrapping its mind around it and making sense of it all. So that's a, the second limitation of naturalism. The third limitation is a problem with the scientific method itself. And I'm going to take a while to address that because I, I, it is important to everything else we're gonna talk about, but it's a little bit more complex. So we're gonna to have to take some time with it. So, okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the scientific method. Um, science um, has, has proven to be a very effective method of studying the world uh, in contrast with philosophy. You know, science, science essentially limited its own sphere of, of study by saying, you know, we're just gonna focus on, on the physical, the material, the natural world, and that's it. We're not gonna look at metaphysics the way philosophy did. Philosophy has spent centuries trying to decipher metaphysics when in reality, it has no access to metaphysics. The most you can do is guess and, and speculate and go one direction and go really deep and far into some direction and, and somebody else will go in a different direction and, and, and go really far there, but have no clue if they're correct about any of this because they have no idea what ultimate reality is like and no way to actually know it. But science has said, no, we're not gonna waste time with that. We're just gonna focus on the natural and study the natural. And we're gonna come up with, the, with we're gonna try to come up with natural explanations for the natural world. And by following this process, science has been extremely successful so far. Um, <clears throat> what this is known as is methodological naturalism. So essentially, this is not some sort of metaphysical claim. You know, scientists don't say, we believe the natural world is all there is. We believe naturalism is the correct perspective. No, essentially scientists just stay out of that debate, stay out of metaphysics completely, but just for the point of their methodology, they just work with this assumption that the world is fully natural and there's natural explanations for everything that exists. Now, this approach, this methodologically naturalistic approach has been opposed by many you know, theists, many Christians, especially within conservative circles, and you know, people have said it's bad and all this stuff. But it is actually one of the things that has made it possible for science to advance as it has, because it allows scientists to just zero in on the on the physical and the material and try to figure it out. And it has been extremely successful. So, I would argue, and I know a lot of conservatives will disagree with me, but I argue that this methodological naturalistic approach is what has 
given us this, this breakthrough in scientific understanding. But that being said, this process has certain limitations. And for some reason, those limitations have not been confronted as far as I can tell by the scientific community or even by philosophers of science. And I think sometimes it has to do with the fear of um, once again, having to get into metaphysics and this getting in the way of scientific progress, which has happened many times in the past. So I think scientists are extremely worried, extremely concerned about any sort of <clears throat> attempt of philosophy to sort of interfere with the scientific, scientific process to the point that they haven't fully acknowledged the limitations of their own process. Uh, because of this naturalistic methodology, there is a potential that, you know, there's going to be false positive or false negatives when it comes to um, figuring out, you know, if there is such a thing, uh, super, if there was any kind of involvement in the development of the universe that is not natural. And, you know, I'm going to try to kind of illustrate how that works in a bit. But before we do that, I want to first think about science in its ideal setting. Okay, let's, let's pick, <clears throat> pick a scenario where science does really, really well. And let's think about how it does things so that it could be very successful. Uh, and one scenario is to figure out if certain types of medication work, you know, maybe in, in, in the context we're, we're living in right now with this pandemic, um, a vaccine might, might have been a better example, but I'm just gonna work with the, with the medication. You know, somebody come, came up with some kind of medicine and they're trying to determine if the medicine is um, effective, right? So there's all these steps that people try to take and they don't always work, but you know, we're talking about an ideal scenario. So the first uh, step that scientists take is to have a very large sample size, as large as they possibly can. Thousands of patients, maybe more if they, they can get a hold of people um, that they can do a, a trial with. Large sample size. Once they have their sample size, they break it into the people that are being tested and then they have a control group. So these this people, the people in the control group are not getting the medication so that they could see a difference between those who are getting it and those who aren't. The people in the control group are still getting a placebo pill though. They're getting a sugar pill, a fake pill. It looks the same like the real medication, maybe even tastes the same. Everything is indistinguishable, but it doesn't have the active ingredients in it so that scientists can track the difference. Because, you know, when people get sick, eventually they get well, assuming that sickness is not terminal. So they want to know if people are getting better because of the medicine or they're getting better naturally or for some other reason, right? <clears throat> so they have the control group, they have the placebo. Then they set up this experiment to be double blind, which means that the patients don't know if they're taking the placebo or the real medicine, but not even the, the staff that is working with them knows. So the doctors, the nurses, the people administering the medications, the people taking, the, taking notes and, and um, collecting data, they don't know who's getting the placebo, who's getting the real pill. And not just this, but the process that decides who's getting what is randomized. So uh, <clears throat> the scientist doesn't sit there and say, okay, I'm gonna give the placebo to people at this hospital and I'm gonna give the 
real medicine to people at this hospital. No, they, they go, they put the entire, the, the entire uh, set of uh, patients through the computer and the computer makes the decision who gets what and the whole thing is anonymized and, and randomized so nobody really knows who's getting what until they get all the data at the end and then they look and, and they compare the results. <clears throat> so obviously you need to have people collecting very accurate data. They need to keep track of everything and make sure that they're keeping track of the results accurately. Uh, you once you have your data, you run the whole thing through through a statistical analysis. You have experts and, and uh, computer programs that are set up for this that go through all the data and they figure out exactly what is happening, whether it's there's a noticeable difference or not, and so on. Once this is done, they attempt to reproduce the process. So they they try to have somebody else do, do sort of a similar experiment. So that way. Even if the experiment seems to work here done by this group of scientists, let's see if it works somewhere else done by a different group of scientists who have uh, no vested interest here. They're not you know, trying to, to, to get this to work so they can make their money or whatever. Um, somebody else can test it and see if it works for them as well. Uh, once this is done, it's, be, it, it's published uh, in peer reviewed publications. So these are uh, official publications that are highly respected that you know only accept uh, they have a very high standard for publication and then these results are published so that uh, others can look at it from you know from different parts of the world different scientists can look at it and and see if they can recognize any problems with the with the study or maybe use the the results of the study for future testing as well so there's a very detailed very intricate process that scientists go to um, and, you know, it's, the more ideal the situation, the more able they are to, to follow all these different steps so that they can make sure their conclusions are correct. Now, this kind of process, <clears throat> you could actually, uh, excuse me, this kind of process, it could actually be applied to something that has to do with the supernatural. So, you know, if, if we decided we wanted to study the um, whether intercessory prayer is effective or not. A scientific experiment just like this can be applied to that as well. And, you know, if what, what you know, whether it's, I, I guess you have to depend on which denomination is running it and, and what kind of intercessory prayer, because different Christians mean, mean different things by intercessory prayer. But somehow a study can be put together, developed to study even things that require supernatural intervention and to determine if these things work, just like they could determine if the medication works. So in this type of situations, um, science, science is perfectly capable of looking at supernatural questions, all right? So now let's, let's think about other, other scenarios. There are situations where things are not ideal. And in fact, most situations are not ideal. So scientists have to find workarounds for things that are more difficult to study than the, the scenario that I described here. So basically <clears throat> things that happen very far in the past, we, we have very little access to them. So it's hard to really study them. Things that are really small, things that are too far away, things that happen too quickly. Uh, things of which you don't have in a large enough sample size. You know, if you're conducting a poll um, to see who, who people are voting for the next 
president. Uh, we've already had our election at this point in time, but four years from now, if you're conducting a poll and you're only asking 20 people in South Dakota, <clears throat> that's not a good sample size. You have, you cannot draw any meaningful conclusions from the results you get from that poll. Um, but sometimes you're limited. You just don't have a way to, to get, a, get a hold of a bigger sample size. Um, sometimes you're looking at events that are like one-off events. Essentially something happened and it happened once and it's just not repeating. So, you know, there's no reproducibility, no repeatability. Um, how are you gonna study that? How are you gonna set it up under experimental conditions? <clears throat> what if uh, you're unable to isolate the variables? You know, something is happening, but you don't know if it's happening because of A, B, or C, and there's no way to really separate the variables. So it ends up affecting your ability to study it. Sometimes there's ethical implications. You know, you would have to conduct a study on humans and, and you're not allowed to do that. So you're kind of stuck. Um, and then to whatever degree these, are, these issues are problematic for studying the physical world, they're even more problematic for studying things, things that are supernatural, assuming such, such things are there. So science does really great in certain situations, but then other situations are more complicated. And, and as a result, it is not able to arrive at the same level of confidence uh, when it comes to addressing those issues. <clears throat> okay, so now, I want to come up, use up, use another analogy um, to illustrate some several other points, um, and I'm going I'm going to be working with the idea of the resurrection of Christ because it is such a central element of the Christian religion, regardless of which uh, theological perspective people are coming from. But instead of using Christ's resurrection. I'm going to come up with, with a completely fabricated resurrection that is much better documented than the one we have in the Bible, right? Because uh, there's, there's a limit to, to the evidence we have for Christ's resurrection, but we can fabricate something that is much better documented. So, for example, let's think of a scenario where, let's say, some <clears throat> emperor about a thousand years ago decided to call the dignitaries from all the nearby nations, people under his domain and people outside of his domain, and to do this massive set of festivities for them and, and to, to basically try to establish some kind of um, diplomatic relationship with people within you know, several hundred miles from, from his capital, right? So this huge gathering happens in some sort of Colosseum-like stadium and uh, you have thousands of people there that are high level officials because everybody, all surrounding nations are trying to be on good terms with this emperor because you know, they don't want to start a war. So they send their top officials from all over the, all over the, you know, this, this nation surrounding the empire. And as they're going around doing their festivities, the emperor decides to kind of give a show of strength at the, at the beginning to to kind of show everybody what he's made of. So he brings a bunch of people out that are condemned to death and he decides to execute them publicly. So he does a series of decapitations, right? So he decapitates all these people and then leaves them there, their, their heads and bodies lying around as 
the rest of the, the events of the day happen, whether it's festivities, whether it's speeches or whatever, these people are just left around uh, for everybody to see on the, on the ground. Now, after, you know, 10 hours pass or whatever, and the festivities have gone on for a while, all of a sudden, let's just say that the heads of these people somehow reconnect with their bodies and they come back to life. So there's this massive resurrection, maybe not everybody that was killed, but you know, 20, 30 people out of the 100 that were, were killed, they're all resurrected and they come back to life, right? And everybody there sees it, you know, the thousands of people are present and they see what happened and they, they freak out and they just go back to their, to their home countries and they write down a, a report of, of what happened uh, because, you know, they have to give a report when they come home. So they all, each one from different nations from different parts of the world, they all write a report and say, man, we were sitting there and where, you know, this guy decided to do this execution and left the bodies in the middle of the road. And we were sitting there watching everything and these people were there dead. And all of a sudden they come back to life and we all saw it and everybody freaked out and everybody ran home. And that's all what happened. So, so all this stuff is documented and left in the official libraries of all these different kingdoms. And then we come on the scene a thousand years later and we recognize that all over this part of the world, many different countries, many different places, there's official documents describing a resurrection. Each description different, each one in the language of the people from there, each one kind of saying it from their own perspective, but they're all there. And it's like, wow, that is like a major event that is very well documented, okay? So why, why am I describing the story? Well, this is a well, way more well-documented resurrection than anything we have for the resurrection of Christ. But the question is, would this be sufficient for modern scientists to take this event seriously? And I would argue that no matter what level of doc documentation you have, a natural explanation will always seem more plausible for somebody looking at it from a scientific perspective. Because there's so many other things that, that could explain what happened. There could be twins. These people had twins and somebody switched them out and, and, and uh, uh, made it look like a resurrection. You know, the people could have been intoxicated after a day of festivities or hypnotized or, or the documents themselves were planted by somebody. There was, this thing was orchestrated so that uh, this thing would, you know, people were paid money to go back and give this false reports or whatever. There's, there's always some kind of natural explanation that would, would seem more plausible than that, the idea that a resurrection actually happened. Okay, so I, I you know, I, I, I made this thing seem as, as uh, undeniable as possible, right? So if you do a decapitation, uh, you know the person is dead as opposed to a crucifixion where maybe they just seem dead, right? And all these different elements, I, I included elements in the story that, that made it as hard as possible to deny that this event happened a thousand years ago. And yet, regardless, um, somebody following the scientific method would still feel that a natural explanation for this thing was always gonna be more plausible. Um, that's just sort of the, the the essence of how scientific reasoning works. I mean, individual scientists might say, no, I think this might've actually been a real resurrection, 
but it's not because they're following the scientific process at, in arriving at that conclusion. <clears throat> um, so, so the essence of methodological naturalism is that there's this process that you go through where you look for natural explanations for something. So I wanna kind of say this in passing now and we'll come back to this idea later, but um, when, when, there's, when Christian theologians are going along with critical scholarship, but at the same time, they're allowing for the resurrection of Christ, what they're actually doing is that, is that they're, they're making an exception. They're suspending their scientific reasoning for this one instance for the resurrection because they need that element as part of their theological system. And then they're applying the scientific process to everything else. So does that make sense? That people are, people are um, th this applies specifically to people maybe coming from like a new orthodox perspective or groups that who see the the incarnation the resurrection of christ as, as essential to their to their system of thinking um they're not being reasonable in doing that they're not being scientific they're just suspending their scientific mindset for that one thing because that one thing is an essential element of their epistemology okay so anyway we'll be back we'll address this thing this uh, point towards the end of the session but i just wanted to mention that in passing here <clears throat> Okay, so essentially, the scientific process is of such a nature that even if something supernatural did happen, unless it can be uh, arranged to be examined under experimental conditions like the one I described earlier. So if somehow, <clears throat> excuse me, the same kind of resurrection, if we, if we could somehow find a way to make it happen now under experimental condition, then yeah, sure, scientists will say, hey, We've gone through about a thousand different resurrections. We've, we've watched it happen. There's, we cannot come up with any physical, any scientific explanation for this. So maybe uh, this is a supernatural occurrence or whatever, because they've applied all these different elements that I mentioned earlier, you know, double blind, randomized, blah, blah, blah. They've applied these things and uh, they said, yeah, yeah, it cannot be denied. This is actually happening. But for something that happened a thousand years ago where it's impossible to, to uh, reproduce it under experimental conditions, um, the, the methodological naturalistic process of science will naturally uh, look for, for other explanations and miss possible supernatural events, even if they did occur. <clears throat> now, this is not just sort of a philosophical demand of science, but it's also a necessary element of science. And the reason is because science works by making testable predictions. So, um, you know, something happened in the past and we wanna know how it happened and we come up with some hypothesis and that hypothesis makes certain predictions about uh, things we should expect to find if the hypothesis is true. So. Um, I don't want to give a specific example, but um, we, we're going to say, okay, this is, this is our hypothesis about how X, Y, Z happened. And if the hypothesis is correct, then if we study things further, we should expect to find X, Y, and Z or, or, or whatever else, some results, some effects of those predictions or, or of that hypothesis. But the thing is, the only way we could make predictions if, is if we assume that the entire process was natural. 
if we're assuming the supernatural was involved, we have no way to know what predictions to make because we don't understand anything about the supernatural aspect of reality if it's there. Um, the only thing we know is the natural world. So the only way we could make testable predictions is if we assume that the whole thing is natural. So it's not just that science sort of stubbornly decides that no supernatural exists, it's all, everything's natural. So even if an extremely well-documented event happened like, like this ultimate resurrection I described, we're still gonna have to stick with the natural no matter what. It's not that, it's just that uh, the process stops working, the process breaks down if we're not able to make testable predictions and we cannot make testable predictions if we're not assuming natural causes. So this is not what I would say, we shouldn't think of this as a fault of science, but as a limitation. Uh, for example, if you have a, a metal detector, you lose something at the beach. So you go and look for it with your metal detector. But if you're, the object you lost is made of plastic, you're not gonna find it. This doesn't mean the metal detector is a bad thing. It just means that it was intended to do a specific thing. And it's very good at finding metal is very good at finding that or of doing what it was intended to do, but it's not good at doing something outside of its scope, right? And science is like that. It's very good at looking at the natural world through a natural lens, looking for natural explanations for natural uh, phenomenon, but it cannot do much more than that. So this is just a limitation of science. And it's a limitation that we need to take into consideration more as we think about science. <clears throat> So to, to really think about this idea of limits when it comes to methodological naturalism, we need to think of the alternative concept of uh, supernatural interference. And a lot of times people coming from an atheistic or naturalistic perspective will say, well, you know, if there was supernatural interference, we would have find, found them by now because there was a time in the past when people used to believe that God was responsible for the lightning and for earthquakes and all this stuff. And we found natural explanations for all these things. So clearly uh, we're very likely going to find natural explanations for everything else as well. The thing is we don't actually know that because it all depends on how much supernatural interference there was to begin with <clears throat> in the formation of our universe, whether any at all, okay? And we gotta think of it in terms of degrees and, and look at it like this. When human beings build things, we don't always build things the same way. Sometimes we make things such that they're able to sort of continue to build themselves afterwards. So for example, we can, we can build a car ourselves or we could build a factory that has robots that end up doing the building for us, okay? So we're just limited human beings, but we don't always micromanage everything we build. So there's no reason to expect uh, some divine or supernatural element that is responsible for, for making the universe possible. We don't need to expect that this element micromanage the the entire creation process and, and everything that exists is constantly dependent on, on God making this happen or making that happen. It's very, very likely that the divine element came in and, and did certain things and then made it such that the rest of it can happen on its own. So the question then is, 
how much interference was necessary in, in the development of our universe and how much of it was intended to, to develop on its own. Because if there was any interference at all, the scientific methodology will have a hard time dealing with that because what it will do is it will do really well up until it reaches that level of, of interference. And when it gets to, to something where there was supernatural interference, <clears throat> science will propose a natural hypothesis. It will attempt to come up with some explanation that's natural. And it will try it, it will come up with predictions, come up with the experiments. And if the experiments fail, they will say, well, maybe this hypothesis is incorrect. Let's try another natural hypothesis. And they will do that. And eventually, they might come up with a hypothesis that seems to work. And it might take decades or centuries before we realize, no, that's not good enough. It's still not explaining this whole thing. And even if we get to the point where we try all these different natural hypotheses and none of them seem to work, we're not gonna say, okay, this must be a supernatural, there, mu there must have been supernatural interference here. What we're gonna say is, well, we gotta just put this question on hold and wait another three, 400 years until science advances far enough for us to come up with a natural explanation. Because we're always assuming in science that there is a natural explanation underlying everything. And that assumption has no basis in anything. It's just, it's just uh, philosophically, it's just a, a guess of one possible way the universe could be. But in, from a scientific perspective, it's sort of a methodological necessity. Because if we don't do that, we're kind of stuck. There, there's nothing else we can do uh, in our study. And, you know, and then the, the, the opposite risk is even worse. Like what if we come up to a, a challenge and we say, look, there, I don't think there, we don't think there's any natural explanation for this. So maybe this part was supernatural and we give up. And what if it turns out that it was natural after all? And, and if we had studied just a little bit further, we might've discovered the natural solution. So we're always kind of caught in this, uh, kind of in between a rock and a hard place when we work through the scientific process, but we need to acknowledge these limitations so that we can understand how to think about every other aspect of, you know, how to, how to think through philosophy and, and, and theology as well. Um, now, a lot of times when I talk about these things, um, it's, it's not necessarily the atheists, but it's the Christians that disagree with me. Uh, or they misunderstand what I'm doing. And the reason that they, they're not, they don't follow this line of reason is because they don't look at science at face value. They don't look at the scientific process as it actually works. They look at it through the lens of their own metaphysical perspective. And most Christians already have a metaphysical perspective, whether it's a, the classical Platonistic perspective, the Aristotelian perspective, or the liberal, um, maybe more like a pantheistic thing where God is both natural, like reality is both natural and supernatural at the same time. Almost all Christians have a certain metaphysical lens that they, they study science through and they think of science through. And then when I talk about some of these things, it doesn't really add up to them because it's not the way they think of science. But the problem is this prevents them for, from ever being able to really evaluate the scientific method because the scientific method has, has its own metaphysic. It makes certain assumptions about how the universe is and it is by working within those assumptions that it comes to its conclusions. It's not using their metaphysics, it's using its own metaphysics. So if we really wanna study 
and think about the scientific method and, and have a, a clear sense of its potential and its limitations, we need to approach it um, by, by coming to it with the metaphysics that is the nearest possible to the metaphysics of science. And that perspective is the, is the deistic perspective. Because essentially the deistic perspective is exactly the same as the naturalistic perspective with the one exception that there was some God that came in at some point and did certain things and then let the whole thing go on its own. And when we hold these two possibilities against each other, then we can see where the scientific method can fall short. So uh, I'm not sure how much more I could say about this now without getting into too many details, but um, <clears throat> I propose that we haven't fully thought through the implications of science. And because of that, we haven't really understood how it affects everything else we do in philosophy and theology. <clears throat> okay, so the naturalist model, we started up with the naturalist, we, we said that there's all these different hypotheses. Once you've established your agnostic baseline, you come up with your hypotheses. One of, your, one of the possible hypotheses is naturalism. And then we said, there's, there's three problems with the naturalistic hypothesis. It has no access to metaphysics, so it can never, it can never dismiss other metaphysical perspectives because it has no way of tapping into metaphysics. It has limited access to the natural universe. So because of that, it, you, you cannot ever be sure, at least for now, maybe at least for another several hundred years, whether the, meta, the naturalistic perspective even works, if it's, if it's even possible. And then there's also a bias in methodology. We've taken all this time to, to describe this bias. So the problem is that naturalism uses a methodology, which is a scientific methodology, but this methodology assumes naturalism to be correct. So essentially, the methodology assumes its own conclusions. So a person is looking at the results of science and say, okay, this essentially proves to me that naturalism is correct without thinking about the fact that the, me the methodology was already assuming naturalism to be correct even before it started, okay? So all these three things, the three things I'm mentioning here are, <clears throat> are challenges with a naturalistic perspective. And again, I think a person can be perfectly natural. I think a person can be perfectly rational as a naturalist but they're not more rational as a naturalist than somebody being a theist or a supernaturalist or, or having some other philosophical perspective because of, at least because of these three limitations. All right, so that said, <clears throat> we got to understand that the only metaphysical perspective that science lines up with perfectly is the naturalistic perspective because it assumes naturalism to be true from the start, okay? So if you're gonna be 100% committed to science, you have to be a naturalist. You cannot be a theist, you cannot be any kind of theist, you cannot be any kind of supernaturalist. If you wanna believe anything else, if you, if you wanna be a Christian, if you wanna be any, any of the Christian perspective, even if you're going with a liberal perspective that seems to be very close to the naturalistic perspective sometimes, you're still, parting ways with, with the scientific process at some point, because if you weren't, you would be a naturalist, all right? Um, pretty much every other model, whether it's other religions or whether it's within the Christian religion, 
like I just said, will we'll end up <clears throat> conflicting with science in some way. And, and the only way to deal with that is to make exceptions, all right? So now coming back to the epistemic models. When you have an epistemic model, what you have is a philosophical structure that is built on a certain epistemic foundation. You're making certain assumptions and you're building on those assumptions and you're developing a, a, a well thought out perspective that tries to explain every aspect of life. Um, but when you're applying science to your own model, you have to make exceptions when it, when it comes to the central elements within your own perspective. So whatever it is, whatever is the foundation, whatever is your epistemology, if you want to, to stay within your model, you have to make scientific exceptions to, to the scientific process, because if you didn't, eventually you, you would end up back in naturalism because that's the only thing that lines up perfectly with science. Um, so the point of all this is that none of the epistemic models are fully compatible with science. None of them are fully committed to the scientific process. Everybody makes exceptions somewhere. So for example, some of the, some of the Christian perspectives that, that are most compatible with science are liberalism and then second, neo-orthodoxy. You know, liberalism depends on who you're talking to, but their epistemic foundations usually have to do with uh, experience, morality, um, philosophy and reasons, so on. Any of those elements, you could apply to this, the scientific process just as well to, as to them. Like for example, this, this feeling of dependency on something greater than yourself. There's an evolutionary explanation for that. There's a way to look at that from, from a purely naturalistic perspective and show why somebody would have those feelings, that sense of dependence, even though there might not be anything out there, right? So science can remove the foundational stones within, within uh, the liberal perspective, just as it does in any of the other perspectives. Uh, in your orthodoxy, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, if you're putting a lot of weight on the life and resurrection of Christ, science could chop that down really quick because being committed to the scientific process will tell you that uh, chances are the resurrection never happened. Chances are Jesus was just a regular person. Uh, chances are that there wasn't anything special about him and so on. So uh, <clears throat> any of these models, th for people to be able to hold down to those perspectives, they have to have some foundation that they're building on. And you could take the scientific process and apply it to that foundation and demolish it, just like you would by demolishing um, other Christian perspectives that are more conservative and they, you know, you could apply science to them as well. And we'll come to this in a second. So because of that, we need to be very careful about <clears throat> allowing for detached criticism in theology. And let me, let me explain again what I mean by this with an analogy. Let's say, let's say you and your body are traveling cross country and trying to get somewhere urgently. You're in a car and you're driving for whatever reason, and you end up in the middle of nowhere. You end up uh, uh, somewhere where there's no civilization for miles and you end up in some kind of rundown old town 
and your car breaks down and it's essentially impossible to fix and you're stuck and you need to get out of there and you happen to to find a, a used car dealership nearby right so you and your friend go to this used car dealership and all their cars are you know they're not in ideal shape i mean they're not they're not brand new for sure um and they all have their problems so you go around and you say okay let me try this car so you pick a car you try it, and you're like okay this seems to, seems to work it seems okay and your friend says no it's got this problem this problem this problem that problem i don't want it so then you go to the next car and you try that car and again your friend says no this car has all these problems and and after you go through about four or five cars you turn to him and you say okay you pick a car so now your friend picks a car and when he gets in it you say oh no this car has all these other problems because all the cars have problems right so if somebody is just sitting by just just standing there as an observer and finding fault they're going to find fault with all the cars but you have to pick one because you need to get to wherever you're going and these are all the only choices you have now one of the issues in theology has been that we have allowed science to stand as sort of an independent observer of theology and to criticize pretty much our process, everything we do in, in theology. But that doesn't help us because in the end, we're still stuck with picking one of the available models. We have to believe in something to, to function in this world. We cannot be pure agnostics and we have to pick a model and all the models have their issues whether it's naturalism or whether it's some other religion or whether it's a Christian religion, regardless of which of the Christian models you pick, there's issues with all of them. And you cannot stand apart the way, you know, critical scholars, for example, have done where they're, they're, they're sort of independent of any model. They don't care which belief you have as long as you don't have all these problems that they keep recognizing. But no, in the end, we all have to pick a model and all the models have problems. They just have different kinds of problems. Every model has a certain, certain epistemology and you could take the same scientific process that critical scholars apply to scripture, for example, and turn it around and apply it to something else, whether it's the, uh, <clears throat> the foundations of liberal theology or new orthodoxy or um, Catholic theology or any of them, pretty much. They, they could all be criticized and dissected in the same way following the same scientific process which is only compatible with naturalism. And again, we've explained why naturalism is not the most favorable model either. It's, it's got its positives, but it's got its faults and it's not superior to, to all the other possibilities. <clears throat> so if we want to have a, a clear sense of where the epistemic models are at, we cannot critique them from an independent stance. We cannot stand outside and look in and, and criticize it. We can only critique them against each other. We can put all the models together <clears throat> and have sort of some sort of criteria of viability. And whenever we, we evaluate any individual model, we could say, okay, here's the, the, this criteria, here's where all the other models are at, and this model doesn't quite meet up with the others, but they cannot be critiqued independently because um, it gives us nothing to, to compare them to, and, and it ends up <clears throat> it ends up comparing the model against an impossible standard that, that doesn't really exist in real life. Because in real life, all our options are 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 not perfect, have their imperfections, have their flaws. <clears throat> so in the end, those two guys 
in the junkyard, you know, picking a car, are going to have to pick a car that has problems. It's just a matter of comparing the cars to each other and figuring out which which of the different options is better overall. But there, none of them are going to be perfect. Okay, so coming back now to the Sola Scriptura model, because this presentation has been an attempt to kind of make sense of this idea of a, of a model based on the Bible alone. Obviously, in this model, the scripture is central. And obviously, critical scholarship has had a whole lot to say about the, 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 the Bible. And so it affects the Sola Scriptura model, model more than maybe other models out there be, that depend on, <clears throat> on more factors than just the Bible alone. And at the same time, the Sola Scriptura model is clearly better at handling critical scholarship than the fundamentalist model, which expects inerrancy to be correct. So the, the fact that the Sola Scriptura model allows for limited errancy gives it a little bit of flexibility, flexibility, a little bit of leeway to interact with critical scholarship. But that said, there's still a ways to go. And here are some of the things that, that need to happen if this model is to be treated fairly, to be given its chance, a chance to, to um, you know, to demonstrate its, its capability to function in, in, in modern times. Um, we have to find a way to make sure that we're not expecting the Sola Scriptura model, we're not holding it to a higher standard than we're, than we're holding all the other models. So if the liberal model is allowed to make certain exceptions when it comes to scientific critique, and the uh, uh, new orthodox model is allowed to make certain exceptions, and the Protestant model or the Catholic model or some of the other models that are considered viable, if they can make certain exceptions when it comes to science, then the sola scriptural models should be able to make similar exceptions when it comes to critical scholarship. Uh, because essentially all the models, like I said, are not perfectly lined up with science. And the same scientific methodology that critical scholars use can be converted and applied to the epistemology of any of these any other models, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is when, a lot of times when we're interacting with critical scholarship, um, what we find is that there's a sort of scholarly consensus on something but what we don't always know is <clears throat> what is the degree of confidence of the scholars on that particular thing? Because in, in science, usually when somebody uh, works through something, they not only, they're, not, they're not only told <clears throat> what the conclusions of the scientist is, but they're also told what confidence level they have in their conclusion because for example, if you have 10 people and, and these 10 people agree that uh, there's 55% chance that's, that someone, some conclusion is correct, then you could say that the consensus among scholars is that this conclusion is correct because 55% leans on the side of the conclusion. But 55% is not a high confidence level. It's not the same as the scholar saying, hey, we're 90% confident that this conclusion is correct. And yet this confidence level is not always transferred across. So for example, when you read a, um, <clears throat> a uh, commentary or, 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 much, or much of the literature, you don't always get the sense of 
what level of evidence is present to lead scholars to their particular conclusions. All you know is that that's the conclusions that they, they get to. So <clears throat> um, if the SOA scriptural model is to interact with, with, the, with the scholarship, it needs to work within this confidence levels so that it has a sense um, how it's gonna respond to various forms of criticism. Um, and an, another kind of way to illustrate this is with an analogy that I've used in the past is that um, let's say, <clears throat> let's say somebody comes to you and tells you that they have evidence that your spouse is being unfaithful. Now imagine that, you, you know, this person sits you down at a table and they pull out an envelope and they, they start pulling out different lines of evidence, uh, trying to convince you that your spouse is not being faithful to you. But as they're doing this, some random person happens to be there sitting next to you guys and they, they listen in on the conversation, okay? So as this person starts bringing out evidence and explaining the evidence to you, there comes a point in time when the, when the bystander who has no idea who you are and who your spouse is, there comes a point when the person, this person says, you know what, I've received sufficient evidence to conclude that this person is really being unfaithful. But the level of evidence, the threshold of evidence required for the bystander is not the same as it is for you who actually know your spouse. If you know that your spouse is a trustworthy person, there's a higher threshold of evidence that you will expect before you are convinced. And this is not being irrational or irresponsible. It's just that you actually know the individuals involved while this person doesn't, or this person has no reason to trust them more than any, any average person. <clears throat> you personally might know that you know your spouse really well, and you know that they're actually more trustworthy than the average spouse. So you would require additional evidence to, to be brought to that same conclusion. So in other words, the burden of proof is higher because you actually trust the individual. Uh, and it's something similar here too. When you're working with this model and when you see the value of, of the Sola Scriptura model and all the things it's able to accomplish in other, in other spheres, it gives you a level of trust that is different from what a critical scholar might be working with who essentially has no nothing uh, nothing vested in this because they're just looking at it critically. They, they probably have their own model uh, that, <clears throat> that they're dependent on their own way of looking at things. So they have a different epistemology where it doesn't matter to them what conclusions they draw about scripture. So there's different trust levels involved and different thresholds of evidence. And uh, because of this, <clears throat> I would say that we would, we would need to maybe create a chapter within critical scholarship that is specifically uh, built to address the, the unique needs of this particular model and to work within those, within those parameters. Um, <clears throat> within, on, on, my, on my slide here, um, for those on the podcast, I have a picture of, um, well, they're, they're triangles, but you could picture them as heels. So imagine, um, <clears throat> imagine that you're driving by this, this area that has a bunch of hills next to each other. And imagine that you pick a certain elevation. So you say, 
a thousand feet. And some of the hills that you're looking at um, are taller than a thousand feet. Some of the hills you're looking at are below the thousand feet mark. I have a picture here that looks kind of like that. I have a bunch of triangles. There's a, there's a, a line and some of the triangles are taller than the line, some of the triangles are lower than the line. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is this idea that there should be a certain set of parameters of viability. And as we evaluate the different epistemic models, we should see if they, if they pass these parameters of viability or not. And rather than having this, this sort of uh, unreasonable standard that none of the models ever measure up to. Okay, so to, to close up this, uh, this series of episodes for now, um, <clears throat> what I've tried to show up to this point is that a true solar scriptura model is possible. Um, there is a way to do theology with the Bible alone that's logical, that, that is not arbitrary, that doesn't lead to theological chaos as some of the accusations I mentioned in the past have been. Um, and there's many reasons why Christians should take this model seriously and look at it and, and, and think through it. Uh, for example, we don't have that many models in Christian theology. So if there, if there is, you know, whatever models there are that are sound and sensible, we should all be aware of it. So every, every seminary student who, who studies theology and finds out that there is such a thing as a Catholic model and there is such a thing as a Protestant model and a liberal model, they should know that a solar scriptural model exists as well. But more than this, this model should have some level of priority because it's based on Christianity's central text. It is a model that is based on something that everyone from all the different perspectives takes seriously. Uh, besides this, the Sola Scriptura slogan has been around for 500 years. So it, it's kind of meaningful that after 500 years, we can finally find a way to, to make it happen, to make it real, to, to, to make it work, even though it hasn't been, people haven't been able to make it work up to this point. Uh, more than this, and this is something I, I address a, a little bit in the paper, but I haven't talked about much here, is that the Sola Scriptura model makes testable predictions about the future. Because I remember I mentioned that <clears throat> um, the Sola Scriptura model is uh, necessarily tied to a histori historicist approach to, to prophecy. But prophecy not only talks about things that have already happened, it talks about things that happen in the future. So if we could decipher those prophecies and understand what they claim, we could actually test the model. So even people that don't take the model seriously now could logically at some point in the future see the predictions materialize and say, hey, I need to give this model a second thought. So those are all important reasons why um, people should be aware that this model exists, whether or not they agree with it. But that said, in this presentation, I've tried to, to open up a pathway and show kind of how we need to go about um, uh, thinking through, through this, this model <clears throat> and thinking through science and philosophy in general, um, because it's possible that this model might even eventually be work, worked out into something that that makes sense even in, in modernity and he finds a way to to <clears throat> to work within within you know all the all the different 
challenges that you might have faced otherwise from science and from other sources. Um, now, I have focused here specifically on the Soascultura model because um, <clears throat> I'm trying to create this space where we have discussions about this model in all its different aspects and try to, to, to look at the possible flaws, possible con concerns, and look at ways to, to build it and to develop it further. But the things I mentioned, especially in this last video, apply much further than the Soascultura model. In fact, it applies to things like the philosophy of science, the philosophy in general, because uh, for centuries, for millennia, people have worked to come to some sort of philosophical theory of everything. And what I would propose is that if there's anything that we have learned so far is that maybe we just can't come to, to that theory of everything. Like maybe we, we, we lack the capacity, humanity lacks <clears throat> the epistemic tools to solve the philosophical problem. And we should make peace with that and should, should become comfortable within this sphere where there's many different possibilities and we don't have a way to know which is correct and to work within those confines. And if this, all these things are correct, that would even possibly bring an end to all the theological wars that we constantly have, because we would just acknowledge the fact that people belong to different epistemic models and that's okay. We, we need to make space for them to, to work through their theology while they make space for us to work through our theology. There's apologetical implications of what I'm saying. Uh, if the approach I'm proposing is correct, then uh, it will change the way we do apologetics as well. And I don't have time to go into this now, but I might spend some time talking about it in future videos. Um, and for those that are concerned, <clears throat> looking at things this way, it's not pluralism. It's not ecumenism, you know, like, People have attempted in the past to sort of create a, a more peaceful space between different theologies by watering down all the different theologies or by, by creating this pluralistic space where everybody's fine and everybody's ideas are correct. No, I'm not saying all these different perspectives are correct. One of them is possibly true, true or none of them are true. But you know, we're, we're hoping that at least one of the different models we're work, working with is the correct one. All I'm saying is that from an academic standpoint, we lack the tools to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that any one of these models is correct. And the, the best we can do is create certain parameters and then to make space for all the, all the viable models to, <clears throat> to continue to work and to stop arguing back and forth, trying to convince each other that one is right and is wrong when in fact, we don't have the tools to do that way. Now, that doesn't mean we might never know which model is correct, but if we do, it's God, God is going to bring that to our attention some other way. I mean, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, <clears throat> God, whoever hears his voice will know of the doctrine. God has his sheep uh, in many different folds and, and he will draw them. So at least from, from within the biblical perspective, there's a, an explanation for how this can happen. Um, so in other words, people can still come to a place where they're confident that they're in the truth, but their confidence is not gonna be academic. They're not gonna be able to, <clears throat> to then demonstrate this to everybody else because um, of the epistemic limitations of how we go about our, our academic process. So um, with that said, I'm kind of scared to click the button here because otherwise it, it might just be this might be the last point and I'm going to get a black screen. 
but um, I think that kind of concludes everything I'm, I'm able to say at this point in time. And I'm hoping to, to have a chance to have further conversations on this and to continue to, to kind of elaborate on some of these different points in future videos. Oh, there was one more, one more thing, which is exactly what I said. Um, I'm extending an invitation uh, to anybody who is interested to, to discuss or debate these ideas further. And for those that are interested in actually doing theology from within the parameters described uh, as belonging to the Sola Scriptura model, then I want to create a space where people can <clears throat> fellowship and, and study and, and, and work to build up this model and to, to think through it further. So with that said, um, um, hope um, everybody made it through this. I know it was a lot and hope to hear back from some of you uh, whenever possible. God bless.